Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And, uh, hey, buddy, do you remember when I installed that stupid program, that stupid app called RoboKiller? Yes. Yeah, that was the uh, the anti-cell uh, phone spam call software, right? Yeah, that's right. It, it has a list of numbers to block for spam. Right. And I've been getting deluged with spam on my phone, spam calls, and I have no idea why. But... The other thing it does is it will play recordings and sort of waste the time of the robocallers. Right. Not robocallers that, you know, the spammers. The telemarketers. Telemarketers, right. The one real sin you can do to them is take up their time. Exactly. And, you know, most of them get it and hang up, but every once in a while it takes one of them a little bit of time to figure it out. So go ahead and roll the crazy music for Better Know a Framework and I'll play you one of my recordings. Awesome. <laughs> All right, dude. Let's hear I've been it. Waiting for this. Yeah, here we go. I hope this is the right one. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, Matthew. To Carl Franklin. Hello. <laughs> yes, Matthew. To Mr. Carl Franklin. Hello. <laughs> Hello, my name is Shay, and I'm a care Hello. coordinator. I'm calling from... Yes, is this Mr. Carl Franklin? Hello. <laughs> you can feel the Hello. exasperation in her voice. Hello. Anyway, I think that's about it. Um, okay. It, it just strings strings are along with, uh, you know, hello, hello, hello. But there's a whole bunch of them. You know, there's people having a conversation one guy says he's out on his boat can you hang on a second i'm sorry can you say that again and you know it just goes on like that but crazy it's crazy how to waste a telemarketer's time it's true i can't believe you get calls on your cell phone that that blows my mind yeah yeah i do all right anyway that's what i got i thought i'd share that with you it's not as funny as it could be but at least it works yeah. yeah, it seems to be doing something. Robo killer. All right, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show, get this, 852. Oh, my. And I'll tell you why. So that's March of 2013. That's when we talked to Cord Davis about the ethics of big data. Mm-hmm. And knowing the conversation we're likely to have today, it was fascinating for me to go back through our catalog of various times we've talked about ethics and morality. And it really was this comment that jumped out at me. Because you think this is six years ago now, right? I mean, yes. Yeah. 2013 this is from chuck conway who says this show left me with more questions than answers because we were talking about you know 2013 kind of the beginning of big data in a lot of respects right i am not sure what to think about in big data privacy it feels similar to the concerns of the internet in the late 90s i recall a time when people believed that they had anonymity and by extension privacy on the internet and could say whatever they liked oh yeah it's still going on it soon became clear that this was not the case, and the internet is just a big extension of the public domain. Right. We can generally figure out who you are. Don't make us. Right. I see immense benefit in leveraging big data. I also see that data being used in harmful ways. Mm. We are in a precarious position. Preemptive legislation to lie fears that may be unfounded and harmful. Proceptive le- legislation that will almost certainly be overreaching and harmful. And I, I find it interesting, Chuck, that no matter what happens with legislation, it's going to be harmful. Mm. I'd love to hear more about big data. Some questions I'd like to address are what's a good use? What might constitute an inappropriate use of big data? And it's what's fascinating to me, of course, is seeing that 
question from Chuck from 2013 and thinking what's happened in the past five years. Right. And just, you know, you, what have we really done with big data? We fed it to machine learning systems. That's what we've really done with it. And uh, l- come up with all kinds of other interesting technology to take advantage of that data. Good or bad is a much more comp- complex question to have there. So, Chuck, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code Buy, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via Facebook. We publish every show there twice a week. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code Buy. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We promise not to string you along. And we can't guarantee your tweets won't fall into the hands of the evils. <laughs> Hello. Hello. hello (laughs) oh well uh richard this is very exciting we uh have the great bill buxton who i'm just learning about but the more i learn about him the more i like this guy already we haven't even talked yet um bill is a canadian computer scientist and designer he's a principal researcher at microsoft research he's known for being one of the pioneers in the human computer interaction field for over 40 years as a designer musician Lecturer, writer, teacher, critic, and researcher, Bill has been obsessed with the evolving human technology dance. From the creative disciplines of music, his focus has evolved to the broader stage upon which this dance takes place. A practicing skeptimist. (laughs) He's a (laughs) devotee of Melvin Kranzberg's first law, technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. It will be some combination of the two. Thus, he is driven by a pursuit of informed design, without which he believes the bias will most likely lean towards the bad rather than the good. This is going to be a great hour. Welcome, Bill. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) You sound just like that guy. You nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, we can start. We can start with our, our complaints about the design of the phone, uh, my, which I have this app on RoboKiller. Why is it that when you 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 go to a conference, right? You get an email uh, that has the code and the numbers and the the pin numbers to a conference call, and y- you can't just do that. You have to enter in the number and go back to the email and the number the conference number isn't waiting for you to do that it's that's a broken interaction and that's just to get this thing started <laughs> yeah no kidding no I, ha- I have a an image i use in talks a lot where um it's basically painting uh, a line down the middle of a road and um they just paint right over a squished armadillo and it, <laughs> right the, ca- the, the caption is it's not my job yeah. <laughs> I think we have this bounded sense of uh, responsibility and uh, nobody seems to have a view of the bigger picture. And that's at the micro level and also on the macro level, I think. Indeed. And it bites us and it gets uh, in, interrupts um, the flow of the activity. It does seem like we're hitting just recently, especially this tipping point. I mean, I, I did the reference from 2013 for that exactly that reason like we were already concerned then we look now especially with a lot of the new artificial intelligence technologies and you know the talks that i'm doing i'm actually saying like check your morality where are you at we you know how are you thinking about what your software can do 
Well, I think I think the um, you know there was a mention in the 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 bio to this um, historian of technology, Melvin Kranzberg, and I refer to him a lot. Um, there was a sociologist I worked with back in. 1980, uh, named Gail Moore, who introduced me to his paper, which was old at the time. And he had, has a set of laws. And the first one is technology is not good. It's not bad, but nor is it neutral. It will be some right. combination of the two. And right off the bat, that's a really interesting thing because it, the first thing, if you're going to use the words good and bad, um, according to what moral compass, I mean, we don't think about that. We use the term good and bad, and we think we know what it means. But in reality, if you sort of said so, according to what and according to whom right. and when and where, um, how, you know, how deeply do we actually think about that when we're making decisions? But the other part of it is if you're using those words, it says that virtually every single technological decision one makes, both as a creator but also as a consumer, is in fact an ethical decision. Right. And mm. and you're not going to get it right because we're human beings, and so we're never going to get it right. And hence, he has this second law, which is um, a beautiful play on the standard way of saying this, and that is that invention is a mother of necessity. Hmm. And because we, um, because of Kranzberg's first law, when you do create something or enter something into your life or your ecosystem, um, it will have some negative consequences. And therefore, um, there's the need to fix what's broken. And if you created it, uh, you own the mess and you therefore <laughs> have to go and clean it up without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And so it's cyclical. You, yeah. you have a need, you invent something, you have some technology to address the need, and now that need may have abated, but other needs arise because of that. So the good news is you always have a job, and the bad news <laughs> is you always have a job. Yeah. Right. And I think that we don't, we just don't think about things in those terms, but, you know, I... I I came up in the music industry and my wife's a painter and, uh, and I've worked in the arts and film and so on. And I encourage, you know, people to go to their newspaper. Let's assume it's, um, at least a decent newspaper that has reasonable, uh, criticism in the arts and so on and read a film review or read a theater review or read a art uh, review or a book review. And then contrast that with how you read a technology review. Hmm. And there's a Canadian author uh, named Margaret Atwood, and I like using her work as an example, um, just in the sense that if you were reviewing one of her books, the way you, uh, a new laptop, for example, is being reviewed, it would be sort of like this. It's got a great cover. The, the illustrations are wonderful, but on the but the binding uh, holds the covers together, and they really, really protect the uh, the pages inside well. <laughs> and they're affixed to inside. Um, the, the pages are actually all holding. They fold over, and they don't fall out. And there's a high luminance contrast between the color of the ink and the color of the paper. It makes it really easy to distinguish the ink from the paper. <laughs> there's a nice 12-point font that makes it legible. Um, it's got a fantastic search algorithm. 
Um, the <laughs> words are separated by spaces and then grouped into <laughs> phrases with punctuation and right. then sentences, paragraphs. And by the way, there's page numberings. There's an index and a table of contents. And by the way, there's a story. Yeah. Just a happenstance. There's a story. And you could never do a, unless you're a structural engineer, a review and architect. Uh, greatest work that in, under those criteria, but that's essentially what we do in technology. You cannot discuss any of the traditional cultural um, industries without taking into account the social, cultural, political, economic uh, context and placing them that way. And what do they mean? What do they mean compared to what happened before? What do they mean to the future? And yet, and this is the part that is critical, if you ask anybody what has had more impact over the last 10 years in their life? And what do they anticipate will have the most impact over the next 10 years? And what worries them the most? I got to tell you, it's not music. It's not theater. It, it's not art, cinema, or dance. The digital things that we make and that, and that are part of our life and which we consume are having more impact than all of the arts and the so-called creative disciplines put together. And yet none of us or very few of us, statistically none of us, um, are thinking in those terms deeply in considering what we make and also what we consume and how we pay for it. And there's a shift there, which I think is critical, that if we don't start thinking of these things in cultural terms, and if the people making them have no training in that, much less the history of their own field, then I think... Um, we're just going to keep going down the same old path and um, we probably will deserve what we get if we do that. And it won't be pretty. I just want to unpack this metaphor a little bit about your laptop review uh, versus a, a review of a book. The laptop review reader is really looking for the information that the laptop reviewer is giving them. Otherwise, they, you know, there would be no reason to review a laptop. There isn't any is there a cultural significance or a story of a laptop beyond what it can do for, you know, versus laptop Y, laptop X, whereas a book is a very subjective thing that is um, abstract and cerebral. And a book review reader isn't going to want to know the technical details of the binding in the pages. That all, all that stuff is a given. So this is why I like this kind of conversation, because I hate it when we all agree. <laughs> and so I'll call you on that. The first thing is um, there's this thing called advertising that is the science, which um, and if I don't tend to believe that uh, people line up um, for overnight to get the latest and greatest uh, smartphone uh, because they need a new smartphone or the one they have is deficient, but I believe that um, they allow themselves to be swayed uh, by other forces and uh, which are highly manipulative mm. and on which the industry depends on. But that's not an independent decision. Uh, it, it very often because they don't tend, they seem to believe that they're still free agents. I think that in literature, people perhaps are simply more. Um, they might be more thinking about um, what they read. Let's put it this way. I, I think if you 
look at the planned obsolescence that's largely reflected in a lot of the gadgets we have today in the, and that affect our lives, that um, it's hard to argue that um, they're all needed and, and, and how quickly we replace them. And mm. the, the problem is, is that the, if you take, you know, your prototypical millennial, and this is, this is me a boomer is talking, right? I'm going to be 70 <laughs> in a few months, so you throw things at me. But, <laughs> the, um, but I have kids and grandkids. I got a six year old who's sort of into this thing. I need a new iPhone type of thing. Right. Uh, the, the issue is, um, these are the same people that are so concerned about the planet and what's, uh, the excesses of consumerism and so on. Mm. And, and so there's these funny contrasts in terms of uh, the stated values and the behavior in mm. terms of how we treat things. And I, I'm not pointing fingers because there's not a lot to help um, think about this or discuss it or we're far more educated in the technical aspects of our devices than we are about the, the cultural and social impact of them. And it's actually very interesting to me as somebody who studies the history of technology pretty intensely, and we can get into that if you like, but the if you believe that the design of digital tech is one of the creative disciplines and there is something called design there, we are the only creative discipline that does not know intimately our own history and view it in social, cultural, political terms. And, and we just leave things behind. We'll say, Oh, that's not important. It's, uh, that's old. It's, it's not history. And so for 40 years, I've actually been collecting and actually more than 40, um, mostly just for reference objects for part of my own practice as a designer, the history of interactive devices. And I'm documenting them um, and curating them as a historian uh, at a museum would mm. because they are extremely important, but it is extremely difficult or equally um, difficult to um, get anyone who's building narratives or stories about them that actually place them in historical terms that are as relevant to understanding the future as they are to understanding the past. And which is certainly what the case would be in art. Uh, Picasso knew the history of art. Any architect knows the history of architecture. Sure. The people in our field do not know the history of um, even five years ago. And the funny thing about that is we work in so-called information technologies where you would expect us <laughs> to have the best tools to be informed about our own discipline. And it's only a 50-year-old discipline. <laughs> or generally speaking, pretty ignorant of it. Yeah. And it's not valued. Just as you can hear the influence of Mozart in Beethoven's music, although it's clearly not the same. For sure. Uh, listen, when, when uh, Keith Richards is playing a riff from uh, Chuck Berry or whoever, uh, Muddy Waters, um, he expects you, uh, if you're a true fan, to, to not only recognize it, but to know where it came from. Right. And start asking the questions, well, why did he pick that riff instead of this other one? And why did he put it here? And where is he going to take it? And that is a huge part of the deeper appreciation of the music. Mm. Um, I think uh, some people can look at Johnny Ives' work, uh, say the iPod, and say, okay, this uh, is influenced by a Braun radio. But I'm not even sure that's the case. 
much less the Dieter Rams who designed that Braun radio. He was influenced by a thing called the Regency, which uh, was at the TR1, if I remember the number correctly, from which was the first mass widely available transistorized product. And, and so it goes back generation after generation um, to, to see where these threads come from. But you think about some poor sap who's coming out of design school, doesn't know the history, and and wants to emulate um, Johnny Ive, and they're trying to do what even Johnny Ive can't do. Um, that is to say, they're trying to think. They believe the Starkitect story. They believe the myth, that the Edison myth of the person black, and uh, they have nothing to draw on. But if that's just drawing on the the design of the device, but what about the the history? And how that fits in. And uh, Bill, I'm just going to interrupt you for this one moment here for this very important message. Hi, this is Richard. The Dev Intersection Fall Show this year will be December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand Hotel. The lineup is awesome. Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, Scott Hunter. Yes, all the Scots. But also a ton of great industry speakers for some insight on what's coming up in the world of .NET. You know, Core3 is bringing client technology like WinForms and WPF into play. Could it be time to migrate your existing desktop apps to this new technology? Come learn more at Dev Intersection, December 3rd to 6th in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand. Go to devintersection.com to register and use the code .netrocks to get a discount. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell, Carl Franklin. Uh, we're here on .net Rocks, and we're talking to Bill Buxton. And you were going to give us a particular example of this not knowing our history. Well, I think the, the thing that I believe is really useful um, to train ourselves to do is to, um, you could either say prospect for or plunder history from all different disciplines to inform us about the nature of our field and the, on both on the positive and the negative side. Um, I was reading a book on the history of British Navy and um just uh, a couple of weeks ago. And the thing that really caught my eye was how the British Navy during the War of 1812 um, prevailed because of a very interesting uh, partnership, which involved big data. Hmm. Now, they have thousands of ships out there that they have to provision and, and take care of where they are, and man them and so on and so forth. But it was worse than that because they had to make convoys to protect all the commercial shipping. And how the heck do they keep track of all of that? Well, it turns out in the second half of the 1700s, Lloyd's of London was founded. And they're insuring all these ships. So they went and made a partnership with Lloyd's. And Lloyd's was the data processing and had the data of all the commercial shipping pretty much in the world because they were insuring them. And then they yeah. partnered with the British Navy, so they could figure out how to organize and um, structure the convoys, which enabled them to maintain trade during all the blockades and avoid um, the, the, the marauding ships that are out to get them. And there's, it's a brilliant example about as we move forward, we realize that the partnerships that got us to where we are today aren't necessarily the partnerships that are going to get us to where we're going tomorrow. And how that might have huge impacts, which in that case, it was a, a case where from the British perspective, it was, that was a wonderful use of, of understanding where the data lay and taking full advantage of it. Yeah, absolutely. Hugely powerful to know those guys had that data. Yeah. And it just happened that that Lloyd's happened to be in, in, in England. 
Right. And nobody else had insurance on that thing. It was a, it was a, it was a very it was a, the industry was at a certain tip of point tipping point where they had to scale, and uh, and they they nailed it. And I love examples like that because they provoke the question. So where are we now that that has a similar situation, and who aren't we talking to that's sitting? Um, you know, hidden right in plain view in front of us if we just saw things through different eyes. And then how do we um, use that in ethical ways? I'm wondering if part of this is that we're still not really a profession. You know, when I think about my eldest daughter who has a fine arts degree, part of getting her degree was an education in the origins of her of her profession and of the, of the art and making that connection with the past. And for the most part, we're still in this industry, we're still doing 16 and 20 week courses to make you a web dev. And there's no room for history. We're just trying to get you through the tool set. Mm. I, I feel the same way as if I was teaching .NET now, I would, I, I would really feel like an urge to go through the history of how we got here. Yet it's, uh, you know, I would be criticized because it's completely impractical. And I've sat through courses like that in university where you know you, you spend a lot of time on historical stuff and in computer science anyway does i i kind of felt it didn't help me to learn what ebsidic was for example you know except that now i have a better appreciation of where ascii came from but did it make me a better programmer i don't know so the question is what in history is relevant yeah, and how it might be relevant as opposed to you have to know everything because of course everybody's um, you know it's it's hard to keep up even on something if you want here, here's the thing the dirty little secret of highly accomplished people is what they've had to neglect in order to become highly accomplished <laughs> <laughs> and because they're so highly accomplished and their brilliance is so dazzling that people around them um not through any fault, are prone to being so blinded by the brilliance in the, this high accomplished aspect of their skill set that they can't see that there's nothing in the shadows. And so the critical thing is, is that one thing is to say, of course, the problems we deal with today are really deep, take high specialization, and they don't afford the time to know all these other things. And the escape from that is being aware of the difference between expertise and literacy. And so, yes, we can go really deep. But the key thing is, is to reserve a certain amount. We can go shallow and broad. So I'm not a historian, um, but I can read about the British Navy and I can get these examples. And that gives me something that I can feed back into my specialty, for example. Yeah. But that doesn't make me a historian um, in, in that sense. And, and so that's the question of literacy. So I think the first thing is, is that preserving a certain part of our time to devote to other um, areas of thought and reading in order that we have a common ground and can hold a conversation with people with other specialties. And so the way I think about this is, yes, we need really deep people. That means you can't be broad. But you can be broader in your literacy than you are in your specialty. That mm -hmm. gives you a common ground with other people. And so it's sort of like the Renaissance is over, but long live the Renaissance. You can right. have a Renaissance team 
And collectively, we can have this broader base. And I have to point out, which I do when I talk about this, is um, even in the Renaissance, there wasn't Renaissance man or woman. Because if 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 Da Vinci or Michelangelo were actually Renaissance uh, men, uh, why did they need the, the uh, Medici? Why didn't they do their own banking? Right. And raise their own money. And so there, even there, there was this codependence. And, and I think we're at a tipping point right now. And this comes up with things like big data, AI, and so on and so forth, where we have to realize that the individual components are all critical, but none of them are essential. But because there's something new in terms of the big data and certainly in terms of AI, um, we, 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 like a bunch of sheep, we go and sort of say, oh man, there's this whole new panacea. It's going to change everything and so on and so forth. And we forget to, yeah, they're new and they're cool and they're amazing what you can do, but they're also codependent on all the other parts of the field. And so if we don't have the broader literacy to say, okay, here's this big mosaic. We've got a new piece that can add fantastic value to the collection. Yeah. But, 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 be clear, we should be literate about it but and figure out how it relates to us, but we shouldn't move in trying to be that because that's the new shiny thing. And by the way, I think that people in big data and AI need to spend as much time learning about the other disciplines as they expect um, the other disciplines to learn about them so that you can start to get this um, heterogeneous uh, network, uh, social network and network of skills that work um as a unit, as a holistic chunk um, to deal with these hard problems. Doesn't this also tie back to Cranberry's fourth law of the whole idea that even though the technology is really important, non-technological issues can make that technology ultimately irrelevant. Like if you don't account for the broader environment that your technology lives in, it will run you over. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I, I, th I think about that. Um, I, I, I worked with, um, Mark Weiser at, at Xerox Park and as part of the team that, you know, had brought you the notions of ubiquitous computing, uh, the park tab. I did the specs for the industrial design of that, for example, and worked a lot on the live board. And I, you know, it's Mark passed way too young, but if he were alive today, um, I would argue with him, and I think he would concede that I'm correct, that he used the wrong word when he talked about ubiquitous computing. Hmm. And because ubiquity means everything everywhere um, all the time. Hmm. It's always there. And that's not what Mark wrote about. And in digging through the Oxford English Dictionary to, um, to get the precise meaning of ubiquitous, I, I stumbled upon completely by accident, but not really because th those types of accidents will happen when you start digging, um, and found another word that's a close cousin called ubiety, U-B-I-E-T-Y, which basically means the right thing at the right place at the right time, which is different than everything everywhere all the time. And this fits into sociology, and so we're coming right back into ethics and, and values because there is something... Uh, well, most of us know the term a social mori, so it's how do you behave? Um, and there's certain conventions about dinner parties and stuff, stuff like that. You can think about mismanners or, um, whoever your guru is in terms of, um, behavior. But the term that 
fits into any location is would be called the moral order of place. So, for example, in your car, the moral order says that if you are using the conventional UI on your smartphone, namely fingers on and eyes on, you should lose your driver's license, no matter how good the technology is. Hmm. Yeah. And the moral order um, when you're landing in San Jose Airport, sending a critical message to your CEO, is that if you don't use eyes on and fingers on and you use voice, you should lose your job. Again, regardless of how good or bad the UI is um, and the AI is, because the person beside you might be for one of your competitors, mm. be from one of your competitors, and uh, and therefore you, it's just violates the moral order of place. You shouldn't mm-hmm. be talking about private things in a public space, especially in, in that concentrated of, of a location. And so these are considerations that have um, everything and nothing to do with the technology per se, but the location. Uh, the place and and um and so when i work on designs certainly for decades people have talked about uh, the use of persona to figure out different usages and different people different skills i'd argue that there's this thing which we uh need to introduce which would be called playsona so where and i mean where in every dimension of possibility of place, uh, where in time, where um, physically, uh, uh, proximity versus absolute position, um, culturally, and, and so on, and and work through those and figure out um, what's the moral order in those places and how can we accommodate that. And you'll notice that one of the things that's fascinating is that, and we don't even notice it because it's so brilliantly done is that once you've introduced your phone to your car, and notice I use the word introduced rather than paired. Or connected. Yeah. You're going to use the social uh, term. Mm. Then, and they have a kinship and a known kinship, then it automatically recognizes, hey, I'm in the car, it's your car, okay, I'm going to behave this way. And 100% of the interaction language changes. 90% of the technology locally managing the call just changes. And therefore, it switches automatically to voice in and out for control as well as speaking. And, and, and it hides without you even knowing it, uh, Excel and Angry Birds because it's simply inappropriate. It violates the moral order of place while you're driving your car t- to use them and nobody misses them. Yeah. But the cool thing is when you get out of the car, a hundred percent of the uh, interaction language changes. of the technology locally managing the call changes. And because of that, you have complete consistency of conversation. But more importantly, you have complete consistency with the moral order because it's okay when I'm leaving the car to go back to the the touchscreen and so on. And now think we didn't notice that. And I'm not even going to talk about handing off the conversation from cell tower to cell tower, which is a whole other layer. But the key thing here is, we don't notice how brilliantly that works. But if we did, collectively, we'd say, why the hell doesn't everything work that well? Yeah, and it comes right yeah. back to what you said, this nonsense about dialing the phone from, from you've got the, I mail you the phone number and, and trying to launch Skype, we're going to do this and that. How All this sort of stuff that comes as this baggage because no one's thinking about the, the overall task in this larger context. 
and and, um, and what do I have? What resources? What's the time pressures and so on and so forth? I agree. Hey, uh, hold that right there because we got a little business to do. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to take a hard look at the blistery mystery of artistry history. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did you, you, Bill, you probably knew this, one of the Jerry Garcia's first band's name, or maybe it was the name of the Grateful Dead before that, was Mythical Ethical Icicle Tricycle. Yes. <laughs> what, a, that age. what a great name. <laughs> it's... Actually, time to give away a $200 Amazon gift card, compliments of Progress Telerik, to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about the most comprehensive developer toolkit for building modern apps on the market today, Telerik DevCraft. With more than 1,100 Telerik.net and Kendo UI JavaScript components and controls, you can easily build modern, high-performant web, mobile, and desktop apps, as well as chatbots. The toolset also includes reporting solutions, automated testing, and productivity tools, and comes with a range of support options. New this year is a free online training program for all license holders, and with this, alongside thousands of demos with source code, comprehensive docs, and a full assortment of Visual Studio templates, you'll be up and running with the Progress Telerik and Kendo UI tools in no time. Download a free 30-day trial today at Telerik.com slash download, and also consider supporting .NET Rocks by making a monthly pledge at patreon.netrocks.com. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Al Gaines. Congratulations, Al. Yep. Golf clap for you, sir. And Al just won a $200 shopping spree from Telerik at Amazon just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to be a member, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree, doesn't matter where, Amazon or otherwise, to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guests, Bill, if you had $5,000 to spend today on technology, what would you buy? And Richard, this ought to be really good. It should be interesting. <laughs> I think I'd buy a canoe. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I think I called that one. But you make canoes. Why would you buy a canoe if you make them? Ah, I make old style canoes. Um, I. I, I normally would have said I'd buy a bicycle, but I just bought one. So okay, um, okay. and five thousand on a bicycle is easy. Five thousand is easy. Is no, a trick. I know, but that's my rain bike. <laughs> I can make a down payment on a bicycle. <laughs> 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 no, um, what I don't have is I don't have a sea kayak, and so that's why I said uh, the canoe is our yeah. uh, sea kayak, hmm. a tandem. I have been investing in sea kayaks recently and picked up a used tandem that I taught my dog to ride in. So is, does that mean it has two hulls and you sit between them? No, no, it's one <laughs> hull, but two, you know, two openings. Oh, okay. Tandem, two openings. Got it. Two, a yeah. two seater. Yeah. 
by the way, uh, I I have done whitewater with uh, West Highland Terrier on the front deck and nice. with a little life jacket with a handle. So if he poop pops off, I was going to say poop off, but he doesn't do that luckily on the kayak. No. But um, <laughs> you just grab the handle and lift him back up. Uh, yeah. He actually was in the bow of my windsurfer and I'd be in the harness and cranking and, and <laughs> standing up there looking like a hood ornament. Coincidentally, my dog is a Cairn Terrier, so cousin to the Westie. And yeah, very much same thing. Got the life jacket with the handle on the back, but I convinced him that if he, he's comfortable sitting in there, he should just stay put. No jumping out after seals. Well, he probably only has to fall out once, you know, and to get back in the boat. And <laughs> just <sort of laughs> yeah. That'd probably be the last time. You know, Sky Terriers, the Westie, the Scotty, the, the Cairn, they're vermin dogs. And when they go on, when they get latched on something, it doesn't matter. They'll run under a steamroller to get to a squirrel. It's mm. there's a psychosis there, but uh, it is what it is. So here's a, a an example, so that this isn't in fact a side conversation, but a, a beautiful segue into an example that fits our previous conversation around counterintuitive places that technology uh, could play, which um, could illustrate that maybe thinking about things differently leads you to not only different places, but pretty interesting places that have um, more general application. So there's a buddy of mine here at uh, Microsoft Research named Amos Milner, and uh, Amos is blind. He has a, a dog that's one of my favorite uh, dogs uh, named Trevor. And I've taken Amos skiing, and uh, for no need whatsoever, Trevor, I hold him on a leash, and he skis beside me, and I sort of ski behind Amos and keep him going. But he had this crazy idea, which I thought was just insane, that he wanted to have a, a kayak regatta um, for blind people. And for blind people. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so um, we've been working on this project for mobility um, using um, not including headphones, sort of so-called uh, bone conduction headphones, um, and oh, mounting yeah. an uh, IMU on the headset so you can sense the head turning and so on and so forth and hook that up to a phone so you get the GPS and so that you can actually get around town, um, even though you've never been to that town before, um, relatively safely. As long as you don't try to replace your dog or your white cane, um, you can actually function. So part of the way that works is it uses non-speech audio rather than spoken uh Instructions. So it's not like uh, the turn by turn instructions that make you stupid when you're driving your car and you can't, they just give you short term. Rather, mm -hmm. it uses sound beacons that you head towards that help you navigate, but it also helps build up a mental model of uh, the space. Cool. So without going into that, which is pretty cool because if you do it right, you can, unlike when you're listening to The Grateful Dead, uh, another back reference, or the uh, dark side of the moon with your headphones on in those cases the sounds are spatial but they're between the ears inside the head but with with signal processing you can put them out in space so they integrate into the physical world and they can be locked in space no matter how you turn your head they stay stationary and, you, and so this is all a really cool way to use ear cons as opposed to icons and other non-speech audio cues and therefore you can still have hold a conversation so Amos decided, well, heck, if we can do this um, on land, why don't we put virtual beacons out on Lake Sammamish around <laughs> just outside of uh, Redmond 
and we'll put tandem kayaks and have a sighted person in the front just for safety, uh, the, the blind person in the back with the headset, and they're the skipper and they're steering and doing things. And so they had to run a course, do this uh, triangular course around the, these invisible beacons. Mm. And, uh, and the cool thing is, is that, um, not only did everybody do it, they never kayaked before, which was kind of funky, but when you put two sighted people in a kayak, and gave them the headset. <laughs> they were hopeless. Um, <laughs> the, the blind people beat them. <laughs> wow. And so the, the key thing about this is, is that not only is it, it gives you another perspective in terms of, um, what's, uh, a disability and so on and so forth of what people are capable of and also what technology can do. But it, it also says we've got all these late superpowers. And if you go off into the edge conditions, you come up with a solution which, in fact, um, has very strong implications for the general population. So, for example, now that means that if you're walking around, if you come out of King's Cross Station in London and you're trying to go to um, University College London, it's a lovely walk, but it's like walking through a rabbit's warren. And uh, there's all this beautiful architecture. People drive on the other side of the streets. You're about to get killed because you look <laughs> the wrong way at the wrong time. Um and you're walking around with your phone in front of you, buried in the in the map, and trying to listen to things which you can't hear, and you can't be social, you can't look around you. All of that can go away. Mm. And you can just have audio cues that give you the directions. You don't look like a fink tourist, because uh, nobody can tell that you don't know where you're going, because you're walking with confidence, because you do know where you're going, because you have the long-term view as well as the short-term, mm. and you can hold a conversation because your cortex is free, um, in the portion that deals with uh, speech management as opposed to non-speech. And you'll get there. It's interesting how... By pushing these edge conditions, you get insights that have far more general apl applicability, but more to the point, and in so doing, you end up in a way that the thing you did for your initial um, customer base or user base uh, gets the benefits of the law of um, the larger economies of scale. And and so there, there's a chance they might even be sustainable to be able to cre create these technologies. Mm. Which says that in doing this stuff, thinking about the economics is as important as thinking about the technology. Right. Before the break, you mentioned um, this car scenario where when you get in the car, everything should change to be voice only, input, output, everything, so that you're not looking and fiddling and touching your, your phone while you're driving. And uh, I have yet to experience any phone, any device, any digital assistant that does that. Am I missing something? I mean, I, I ask um, the Google Assistant, um, Cortana, Siri, Alexa, uh, all of them. You ask them a question and, you know, I've Googled some things for you and that's it. And you're done. You, you Read me a Wikipedia page. What's so hard about that? You know, tell me the first 10 or whatever to me. Let me go through those responses. This is, again, comes back to when I said, um, we were talking about the book review versus the technology review, mm. and it had something to do with advertising and, and hype. And I think the this comes back to the skeptimist in my uh, <laughs> uh, self-description, is that um, we have to be as vigilant in our skepticism as we are in our optimism. 
And so you that you have to maintain this balance. And and let's be clear, this is something that I call a long nose of innovation, but things take really long time. I first used a mouse in 1971, and the mouse mm. at that point was already six years old. Yeah. And the mouse I was using had been in use since 1969. It 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 was invented in 65. Um, it wasn't until Windows 95, 30 years later, that everybody had a mouse because you need this larger ecosystem to come into place. Right. The short uh, statement of that is, is that things are moving way, way more slowly than any of us um, believe uh, because of the false impression of a bunch of things moving slowly gives you the impression of a lot of, of, of some things moving quickly. Right. There's a lot of change. But it's not changing. Nothing's moving quickly, and hmm. it takes at least twenty years for things to, to really uh, take off because you need the whole other ecosystem, and uh, including the GUI. That's that was an example. I, I was doing capacitive multi-touch in 1984, and it wow. wasn't until uh, 2007 with the iPhone that it became mainstream. Hmm. And right. on the and so the point I'm trying to make here is that. Um, what you're describing will happen, but it could happen faster than it will happen. But that's simply because we are too focused on in our traditional rabbit holes or silos uh, to start to architect things for the bigger picture. So it's all about how you think about things. It, it comes back to... Um, you have probably interviewed a lot of people where they're talking about what's the next big thing, what's coming, what's mm, going to sure. happen in terms of what's the next new application, the next new service, or the next new cool device. And I'd say it's none of the above. And in fact, the next big thing is not even a thing. It's a change in the relationship amongst the things that are already there and the things that are going to come out. And when I say a change in relationship, I mean that very much in terms of the social relationship. Mm -hmm. And we think about social computing as being something like Facebook or Twitter, which is a technology to support the social relationships amongst people. But we don't think at all about the social relationships amongst technologies themselves. So if we come into the car, um, I gave you a good example about how it does something pretty amazing that makes me smile every time I get out of the car when that transition from the moral order of the car versus the moral order out of the car. But on the other hand, I, I have a Ford Escape, and I rented one at Whistler to go skiing. It's exactly the same car, exactly the same model. But my the people who designed the technology had never considered the difference between introducing the phone to a rental car compared to your owner, the car you own. Right. And And it should be completely different because the kinship is different. And therefore, the trust relationships are different, and therefore, what you're willing to share is different. Right? No, I don't. I don't want to download all my contacts into this car. No. Oh man, I found them. I found that. Were those <laughs> your contacts I found in your car, in, my, in the rental car? Because I have found in rental cars the most private personal information that the, the poor people who left it there had no idea that it was going into there in the first place, and it was inexcusable. That it ever went in there in the first place because the people who designed the systems um, did not consider that because they don't think about placeholders. They thought like engineers. Can I pair a phone with a car? Yeah. And get the data in as opposed to whose car, when, where, and with what degree of trust? What's the social relationship? And the minute we start to use the notions of kinship and introduction 
it forces through that very language taking a very different approach to how we deal with things. It goes back to what you said about the philosophy of what is good and what is bad. And good for who? Good for what? Good when? Good where? And the thing is, and this is the crazy thing, every single player that I can think of in that particular transaction would have won. Avis or Hertz <laughs> would have been better. Um, the consumer would have been better because they, if they knew they had a trusted relationship, for General Motors, whoever the car manufacturer is, would have been better off. Everybody would have been better. Yeah. And, and, and they, and it would have created trust. Um, and, and the fact that, um, there's no outrage or just, uh, we just have gotten used to these speed bumps and, and we've got complacent and we should stop being that way. When we hit friction points, we should yell and scream. Agree. And, but, and also come up with a constructive solution. So we're not just a bunch of whiners. Right. Yeah. Always need to be offering more solutions to it. I, I do appreciate this idea that, that our moment of morality is related to ubiety. It's where you are and what you're doing, you know, at that time in that moment. Do, do you see this ascending now? Like I'm, I'm looking at the news stories around AI for the defense department and, you know, a group of Google employees saying, we don't want to work on this. We don't want the company to work on it and, and so on. Do you, do you see this as a surfacing of this? Is this anything new or has it always been true? Um, my experience is it's always been true. I, I know that um, in the early days of SIGGRAPH, uh, you know, we were trying to build these animation systems and, and uh, figure out rendering and this and that. And, and there were these, I'm going to oversimplify, but there was a, there was the military camp that would go to SIGGRAPH because they're looking for things for flight simulators and weapon systems. And there was a, and there were the people who wanted to make cartoons and animation and with the artsy, farsi people, which I was sort of more a part of. And, and the reality was, is that people would make a decision. We're going to go into this and just work on the computer animation. But of course, uh, the coolest things in, uh, in the animation stuff uh, in year N, uh, N1 plus one was appearing in in the flight simulators, and 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 so you there's always this crossover. Once you put something out in the world, you lose control of it, and um, mm -hmm. and and in some sense, you could say that about the internet. Um, I'm not a specialist in networking, but it is my understanding that. Um, in the initial foundations, had it been anticipated um, some, the, some of the negative aspects, that some of the checks and balances could have been built into the system that would have saved, uh, made it much easier, shall we say, to sure. to protect. I, I can't speak deeply to that, but it's um, but it's well, plausible. We, we just had an event this weekend that reminded us of the origins of the internet being a group of university IT guys. Who, who just trusted each other when Pakistan attempted to block a single YouTube video that the Pakistan government decided was offensive and took out YouTube for two thirds of the planet. Yeah. Because the BGP protocol literally has no security wrapped around it. It's just they pushed a route and it redirected everybody through them so they could block that video. It was a, it was a mistake in an, what is essentially an open protocol that is the backbone of the internet. And I, I think the the zeitgeist at the time was on to a large part of the community was sort of the stuff from Buckminster Fuller and, and uh, McLuhan and, mm -hmm. and and so on about um, 
this global village, and if we could just communicate, we would start to uh, be kind of a kumbaya moment that uh, with with communication would become understanding and tolerance. And, uh, and they weren't wrong. I mean, I think you're seeing the evidence of all of that, but it comes with some consequences. But it's also a double-edged sword because we've also mm-hmm. seen that <laughs> the, you can use it for uh, exactly the opposite purposes. And that, again, it comes sure. back to Kranz's first law. Well, and you mentioned McLuhan because McLuhan's, my favorite reference to McLuhan's is we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. Absolutely. That's yeah. definitely what happened to the internet. You know, we, we made this tool and we're continue to make these tools. And every time we make them, they make us. Now, that's the coolest observation. So, that, so thank you for bringing it up because it's a, it's a really, it's really timely, both in the conversation and in terms of the bigger picture. Because if we're looking for a way to fix what's broken, take the part of Kranzberg's second law, then what you just said is one of the vehicles, the, the mm-hmm. tools that are, how do we design the tools and the technology that, so that we leverage the bias of the path of least resistance so that it's easier to do it in the preferred way than the other way and that channels people's behavior and expectations along a different path. Um, I, I think it's perfectly fine to not be a wishy-washy liberal and say, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, but to try and um, explicitly and openly uh, try to put biases uh, into the, the tools, mm-hmm. and but carefully so, but also to be aware of the biases that are either accidentally or nefariously put into the tools. Maybe apps need to come with a morality setting. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. I, I, you know, there's there's a woman uh, at, from our New York lab, Kate Crawford, who I respect immensely, and she's somebody who I'd love to have this conversation with because um, I, I, every time I s- s- say the word bias um, in tools, I picture her what. To look, I look up at her virtual face and my imagination to see what her reactions being to what I'm saying to, as a reality check. But the point is this. Every tool already is biased. And the only question is, uh, is the bias there by commission or by omission? Were they even aware that they were building a bias mm. when they built the tool? Right. Whether it's a word processor or a web browser or any tool has an inherent bias. And that comes back to the introduction, so to speak, and sort of saying, um, we are bu- building biases in the very th- tools we make, whether we know it or not. So we might as well make best efforts to um, be conscious that we're making such decisions, what they are, and what our uh, editorial stance on that would be. Mm-hmm, so sure. that we, uh, if we, because if we know why we made the decision and it goes wrong, having that design rationale well documented. Let's just go back and do a check and maybe revise our uh, our rule set that, 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 and the criteria according to which we made the decision. And that's it's okay to make things wrong along the way as long as you are deliberate about it and you can take that as a learning uh, experience so you can do better the next time as well as patch up the, the holes um, from the last time. Hey, Bill, before we let you go, I want to know how your, your work and your uh, Outlook has helped Microsoft research with 
whatever projects they've uh, that you've been doing for them i would say that um the the whole notion of society of uh, technologies and i don't say society of devices because it includes the, the cloud services applications as uh, well as uh, devices that that notion of the social relationship and trying to get things to work together is is um is one of the things which I've been working on becoming part of the culture of the company and I, and and i it's it is getting hold i i think that the simple way of saying it is that you know if you look at these what ifs in terms of the future what if things just work hmm. what That'd if things nice. just worked together that's just what crazy if, talk, Mr. Buxton. Uh, crazy no. talk. <laughs> and, and what if in working together, subversive, it so seamlessly? And what that if they were transparent? You, it just happened. And and what if every time you added a new device or application or service, did it increase the value of everything else you had, as well as having a justifiable value on its own? Mm. And finally, and this is the kicker: what if in adding every new thing it reduced the overall complexity. Right. It knows its place in the big picture yep. and provides that service. And those are the rules of the game. They have to work. They have to work together seamlessly with a reduction in overall complexity and uh, an augmentation in value. And those two last two, I mean geometrically, not uh, arithmetically. That's the aspiration. Awesome. I can't tell you how enjoyable it was uh, shooting the breeze with you for this last hour, Bill. And on ha behalf of Richard, myself, and all of our listeners, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us today. It's a pleasure, and thanks for making me think. All right. Likewise. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a